I'm Robert Lendrum. I'm Jamie Roberts. And this is the Running Scared Podcast. Where we review the movies that had you running away but coming back for more. And we're back for more and we're back for some Christmas holiday spirit, Jamie. This is a Christmas episode of the Running Scared Podcast. Happy holidays, bud. What are you going to do? Ah, Rob, you know me. Kicking it with the fam. Doing my thing. Uh, we got the uh, we got the Christmas Eve set up. We got, we got that happening down in Hamilton, Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, we got the uh, we got we're going down to the Big Smoke, my home, uh, where I live, where I love, where I've been, where I've seen. Uh, we're going down to Toronto to my parents. Actually, don't even say Toronto. We're going down to Toronto um, uh, to my parents' house for Christmas Day. That's going to be awesome. I got I got my sister coming in. Uh, you know, we got everybody coming in. It's gonna be, uh, it's gonna be something. I'll probably be up with the fam up in Kingston. Uh, you know, we're gonna host something here in Laval, so it should be a good time. Uh, we should also do some plugging here, Jamie. New Patreon structure, which we've talked about a few times. Uh, we always love your support, so please check us out on Patreon. We are making some exclusive content. There is gonna be a Christmas episode, I believe, right, Jamie? You've got us doing. Maybe we'll save that for the end. Should we tell them now? We're gonna do. The Ginger Dead Man, strictly for our Patreon subscribers, as well as a new show we're doing, Jamie, called The Cool Down, where we kind of do some navel gazing and chit chat about how we did on our last pod, kind of pick up anything we forgot, or sometimes we include some bits that we didn't put in the pod because we just felt it was running too long or didn't quite click. Um, and we also just talk about some other, uh, you know, just a little looser structure, a couple giveaways or contests that I know you plan to, you know, uh, mentioned to the fans, but I don't think we've done it yet. All right. So tonight, Jamie, we're doing Black Christmas. This is a 1974, considered a cult classic horror film. And guess what, dude? It's Canadian. On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a beer. This is a Canadian film inspired by murders in the Westmount of Montreal, which is where I live. And I don't live in Westmount, but nearby. Um, the director is Bob Clark. This includes quite a bit of Canadian acting talent as well. But before we get into this too much... Maybe we should do the one-line challenge. Black Christmas. Sorority sisters come together and fight for their life against a psycho, misogynistic weirdo who calls them and haunts them inside their sorority house as the holidays take a backseat to a haunting chiller. Black Christmas. <laughs> oh man, you always bringing it with that one-line challenge. I like that. I like that a lot. All right, here we go. One, two, three. Black Christmas. Sorority sisters on a seemingly serendipitous party adventure. (laughs) Unfortunately, chose a way too strong version of Lattice that has allowed an ancient serial killer to acquire access to their attic. Black Christmas. That was pretty good. That was good. Now, James, before we get too deep into our, um, you know, review of the film, one thing we should talk about is the title. There was, I think you were talking about this. You were saying like off, off pod that you thought the title was weird. Tell me what you think. Yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of Black Christmas. I I thought that, you know, for, for what the movie was, you know, maybe among other things, it was a little bit of a cop out, you know, Black Christmas. Uh, to me, you know, no pun intended. I'm not sure it rings true with the with the with the with the really like what the story was offering, right? Like, okay, yeah, yeah, we get it. It's not a white Christmas. You have some other ideas for new titles, Rob. I'm gonna hit you with this. Here we go. Number one, sorority mouse. Here's another one. How about this? The sorority strangler. Even doesn't really strangle anyone. He suffoc. Actually, I just thought about right now. The sorority suffocator. I like that one. Or the moaner. Now that's the thing, like, that's gonna be a hard sell to the studio if you come if you come with the moaner. You know what I mean? 
I'm not sure. I'm not sure going to be. They're going to be on top of that one. But so, Jimmy, one of the funny things about the title is it re- originally was not called Black Christmas. It was originally entitled Silent Night, Evil Night. And and I think that's kind of funny because one of the things about it is that they didn't want to call it Black Christmas because this is during the black exploitation area era, and they were worried like people would assume this was a black exploitation film. So uh, anything, anyway, interesting piece of trivia there. Um, Let's get into this film, Jamie, and let's talk about a couple of the let's talk about some of the key aspects of this film. Well, initial thoughts, Jamie. Uh, this movie's ahead of its time in a lot of ways, and you know, you look back on it now and you watch it, you're like, ah, it feels slow. And sometimes, again, this is our taste. We're looking back at things from 2022. The movie feels a bit slow sometimes, but there are some key innovations in this film, are there not? The first, I would have to say, and I think you point, we've all talked about this. Everyone knows this: the POV style, of the camera. Totally. No, I, I don't know if this movie established it, but this is definitely a unique and interesting way to use it. The cameraman is is the killer. He's creeping around the house, and we're getting that peekaboo style, but it's from his perspective, so it's very haunting and chilling. The the movement is very slow, and at times I was almost like, oh my god, how slow does this guy move? But when you realize he's creeping around the house and he doesn't want to be caught, this makes perfect sense, and it really comes together in that end scene when they get down into the basement. But again, this probably has to do with the technology where they finally were free of cameras that were hooked up to a whole bunch of shit. They could actually move around just with like a, like a shoulder mount. Uh, pretty interesting that they came up with this. The other big one in this film is the idea of the phone being used as a weapon and this technology being kind of used against us. And and this film really gets into it. Like we get into wiretapping. Uh, we get into like the fact that there's two lines in the house and like this is going to play a major role in revealing what's going on with the villain. Very, very cool. Yeah, one of the good things about this movie is the police work is believable. It's, you know, Rob, that's one of the issues that I've taken or that we've taken with all the films that we just, that we always review. Like we just did the Halloween uh, trilogy, the new films from 2018 to 2022, and just talked about how ridiculously bad the police work was in those films. And you, all you need to do is look to all the main franchises and all the other horror films or so many horror films that have been made. Just look at how incompetent the police are. It was refreshing to actually take a look at this film and to see that the police work was, was credible, was smart and intelligent and actually had somebody with uh, competence that was leading the force here, right? Like I was thinking about the guy with the big, the big Stetson in Halloween. Like what, what, what does that guy do? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Cause he's certainly not leading. Uh, but, uh, but this cat, uh, John Saxon does a, does an amazing job. So like, that was really nice. And, and one of the cool things is I love to learn when I'm watching a movie, uh, and you learn how like the wire t- taps go, sorry, three, two, one, you learn how the wiretapping system went and all the, the work that they had to do to actually get a tap on someone to find out where they were, which I think, is actually pretty effective at building out to where they find out the callers come from the house, like from inside the house. You know, you've seen that before in more recent films. And I kind of, you know, you could definitely, you didn't need a slide rule to figure out that's where the story was going. But I, I thought it was pretty effective and had really nice pacing, you know, didn't give it to you all at once, let it, uh, let it simmer a little bit. So I think the police work was, uh, was good. Rob, I know you've got something to say about that as well. Jamie, great point about the police work. I actually think that is what makes this film really good and believable. There is that one idiot cop, but really John Saxon played by, or playing uh, Lieutenant Fuller is really smart and thorough. And he's like, he's approaching the problem in a very logical way. And the police work really seems to make sense. And they, they amp up their investigation as they realize the magnitude. And I think that adds a lot to the film because it makes the villain more impressive. Like when you have a good antagonist and, and I mean, okay. When you have a, you know, two people battling each other in a film, you know, you get protagonist, antagonist, Lieutenant Fuller is like up to this challenge. And so like the killer becomes um, a more interesting killer because he's avoiding this, this guy who's really smart. So it's always great when you can pit two strong characters against each other because you kind of get the best of both. And I think that's what makes our killer more interesting in this film is that he's actually being challenged by a very good detective um, and yet never gets discovered. What did you think about the ending where we do not get the payoff of revealing who the killer is? Some people have really criticized this for being a cop-out. Um, 
you know, was it a setup for a sequel or is this like an artful choice because maybe they only thought this is it. We're just going to do this one idea or we're just going to do this one film or did they run out of ideas? I think this is more of an art film where they're trying to they're trying to do something interesting and new. I don't think they were trying to set up a franchise or a bunch of sequels, but it is a really it's a kind of choice that I know it's going to leave a bad taste in some people's mouths because they want that satisfaction. But I think the other thing here with Black Christmas is you're not setting up an iconic villain who has like a cool like weapon or a cool mask like Michael Myers or like Freddy. It's just like off camera and it's almost more omnipresent and, and more sinister because of that. And I think that's where the movie found its strength and decided, you know what, let's keep it right there. And so you get that twist ending. I think that horror making or horror filmmaking has become obsessed with the idea of like the, the bankable front franchisable villain star. I know, you know, there was a great documentary that I saw on uh, Wes Craven and after Friday or um, Freddy Krueger, you know, he was trying to come up with another franchisable star and how that relates to this film is there was never the opportunity to actually create a franchisable star because the killer in this film is never revealed, which certainly strengthens the narrative that, you know, this is a standalone film. There was never going to be a sequel. And it was, you know, I think you've talked about it. You might actually mention it as this, as this is more of an art film. You know, it's funny, like we, we talk about this as I see this as you know, and I'll talk about this later in the character section, but this is like a comedy movie. And then it's also an art film and it's also a police film and it's also a horror film. And I think the fusion aspect of this film has really come to light in recent years, which has lent credence to a cult following that it receives. And it also spun a couple of, couple of remakes, reboots, whatever you want to call it from this film. Uh, so would I have loved to have known the killer for sure? Because I think that that equates to figuring out what motive is. I think it's always difficult when questions are left unanswered. I just think about if you're even watching something on television or the news and, you know, you don't find out what happens, right? You're left with a lot of questions and you always want to answer them. So in this instance, yeah, I would have liked to have seen uh, who the killer was. I think it can be a cop-out, but I was... I think in time I was okay with them not revealing the killer. Rob, what did you think? Yeah, good point. All right. I think we've covered kind of the big, those are the big things that make this a cult classic or the things that people really gravitate to when they review this film. Let's take a look at the characters and see how they guide us through how this makes an interesting movie. Before we get into the characters, Jamie, there's one thing our listeners might notice is that I sound silky smooth right now because I... We have had to stop our recording, pick it up a little bit later, like fucking two weeks later. And I'm not kidding. And I happen to be now at work where we have a proper sound booth. So if I sound extra crispy right now, that's because I'm in a really good recording situation. Uh, And I'm happy to be back here with you picking it up midway to get into the characters of Black Christmas, starting off with Barb. Uh, Why is she so angry? That's a great question. And I just want to, I just want to, for the record, call it 13 days. We podcast on Friday nights. Yeah. Why is Barb so angry? She is right from the get go. She's got a drink in her hand the entire movie. She's fucking <laughs> punking off the fucking moaner that's calling on the phone. Like, oh, why don't you go find a wall sock and stick your tongue in it? That'll give you a charge. And one of the things that's interesting about Barb is she's set up right from the start as like the main the main female character and that really doesn't come to fruition later on in the movie yeah. which i found a little bit confounding but i think one interesting point maybe not interesting but an important point uh was to have a female like that in the movie the you know this is 1974 right like a strong female character that is in control of herself, that is not afraid to express herself and quite frankly, like <laughs> be belligerent to, uh, you know, what the police officers around her, like the, how the, her the, mother, her, her mother, she's got, some, well, you, you've got the best line there. You know I mean? She's got, uh, she's got a, a old school beer from Canada. She's got a Labatt 50 in her hand. <laughs> yeah, she's, at the, she's at the cop shop with a Labatt 50 in her hand. And by the way, in Canada, I don't think you could ever, I don't know. What do you think? Could you walk around with a beer in your hand? 
Oh, and I, drink in public? I so, don't think we can still do that. So it's funny, to, like when my mother was working in the in the, the bank, I, and this is different from having a beer, but she would always tell me stories about when she was working as a bank teller in like the 70s and she'd be smoking at her kiosk. So walking into a, a, a cop shop and having a beer, I, I don't know, actually, I probably don't think it would be that much of an issue. It's, it's funny how like I think maybe some of those laws were looser before and then they've tightened up and now they're starting to loosen up again so but uh yeah i think it'd be okay <laughs> what are some of the lines she's got for her for her mother she gets on the phone with her mom and she's like her mom cancels christmas she's not coming bribe's kind of upset because she had plans and she's like you're a real gold-plated whore aren't you mom <laughs> wow what i feel like these i feel like you know um i feel like andrea martin because this is she's the she's gonna go and Phil. end up being sorry, yeah she, she's Phil she's gonna end up going on SCTV and just and she's she's a comedic actor I feel like she auditioned for the part of Barb but didn't get it I don't know what happened you with her I mean? because, because as yeah, Phil yeah. she's criminally underused she's actually used to be this sensitive like uh, the one who's got the ear for everybody and who actually like talks uh, Barb off one of her limbs when she's going off and she's hammered and Phil just kind of says, go to sleep, Barb. <laughs> go to sleep, Barb. But, go to but sleep, yeah, Barb. Like, this is an actress who <laughs> turns out to be like a comedy uh, legend in Canada and just isn't used to that effect whatsoever. And like you said, like Barb really is yeah. set up at a certain point to be kind of the star, or at least I thought maybe she was going to be the main character. But then they push her so far that maybe it's like they purposely like send her really yeah. far over the edge where she's too belligerent. And then that's in con- contrast to Jess, who is our main character, who, by the way, is super boring. And like the only thing that makes her interesting is when we find out later that she's hiding a secret. I wanted, you know, like one of the best scenes or one of the best moments that we talked about in this film is right at the end where you start to see who is the main character, uh, Jess, she traverses all the levels. She goes from like the, where the bedrooms are down to the attic and she, there's a chase there, right? And it's a great part of the film. I wish we would have had that with Barb. You know, eventually maybe in in that space she would have gotten it and then it would have moved on to Jess. But we never we never get the payoff with Barb, which is mm-hmm. which is disappointing. Um, and and speaking then, of Jess, Jamie, like, yeah, like, did you try to figure out what is her accent? She's English. She's is she? A, she's English. Yeah, I, I had, thought she was French. Well, you don't know. Like she, she's English actress. Is Olivia Hussey, and I, I honestly, so watching this movie a couple of times, I found her like just really boring. She didn't hold my interest on camera very much. Hello. Pardon. Who? She, you know, the number of times <laughs> no, I know, she I know. didn't. She, the number, yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm just like she, especially she's very, um, she's shaded a lot by the characters around her, notably Barb and the house mother, who kind of add that like completely eccentric kind of comedic edge to it, and and Jess just sort of lingers in this middle area right here. Now she has a strong showing at the end of the film. But really, um, it's not until she reveals that uh, that secret that that sort of um, I think it's about like maybe the forty fifth or the fiftieth minute mark with Peter that really the film sort of shifts around her and her relationship. Rob, what is that secret? The secret is she's pregnant. Shut up! Oh, she's pregnant, and her boyfriend wants her to keep it. And wants her to get married and go work in the kitchen, but she's not interested in any of that. Another, mo- another. Uh, Did you get that? I didn't feel like. No, she- he says something to that effect. Like, well, no, sorry, he says something like, "We should get married" or whatever, and she turns it around on him and says, "You're asking me to make all these changes um, to suit your career. You've decided you don't want to be an artist anymore. You don't want to exactly, be here. Yeah, and yeah. but you're not actually like asking me what do I want to be doing. You're just assuming." I'm going to be a wife pregnant with kids. And uh, she calls him out. Like she calls, she, she sees it exactly as he's uh, pitching it, but he doesn't even know that he's saying that, but that is what he's kind of getting to. And this is another point to you that this film has like that feminist uh, undertone that absolutely, that was probably, you know, like you're saying, gets recognized kind of later in life as it became a cult classic. So yeah, Je- uh, Jess, not the most exciting, the boyfriend. I can't remember what this guy's name is. Oh, um, Kier Dulia. This is Peter. 
Oh, this is Peter. Okay. So, yeah, Peter, so Peter's like, the artist who smashes pianos. He's like a, he's like a, what's that guy's name? John Cage? You know what I'm talking <laughs> it about? Is, you said music John theory. Cage. Ta- touch it. Yeah, I know Cage for sure. Where he just sat there. He, he um, It was Cage that, or was it Cage or Crumb? No, it's Cage. He's like, Crumb's a cartoonist. No, 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 no. Crumb was a, was an artist as well. They were all avant-garde musicians. So they did like um, a lot of atonal music. They did a lot of percussive music. It was Cage that did, um, he uh, he wrote a piece called Tatchet, which is, I think in, in Italian is silence. So he sat down at the yeah. piano for four minutes and 30 se- 37 yeah. seconds and didn't fucking touch the thing. Yeah. But, and it but, was all about like, you have to hear the space you're in too because that's that's, par- that's part of the acoustics the of this. sounds right yeah. exactly so yeah he comes in and you know he's you made a really good point about how they they really try to portray him as like the crazy artist he's doing the piano and he's yeah. and he's and by the way that's called a panel so he wasn't he was doing his like end of year panel mm-hmm. now it would have been it to me he was in a performance degree that probably would have been whatever it is doctorate or something like that is highly stressful like like that i actually connected with him it's like a thesis defense absolutely man like he is like he's pouring his heart and his soul and at no point did i find that that was like over the top or not realistic because you could just see the stress on his face and and it's trust me it's because i've had it happen to me as well it's noticeable when you have the the panel judges and they're looking at your performance they're supposed to stay very static but if they turn over and kind of give the facial expression that you're not interested do you understand what that's like when you're actually in the middle of a performance it is the most oh it's it's the most debilitating thing one could ever experience so <laughs> i don't think this one's gonna make it boys Mm-hmm. His reaction at the end is just to. Did you tip. not find? Did you not find like his performance, like the music that he's doing, a little bit over the top? Though it felt a little bit like a film making fun of a sort of avant-garde art movement, where they're like, "Oh, let's let's make him just pound on the keyboard for a while." I, you know what? I I because it was all filmed at UFT, and because uh, because of like just the way this guy looked, the, the the only thing that I was thinking about him when he when he was doing his performance was Glenn Gould. So Glenn Gould was a very, very famous pianist from Toronto um, and went to school at UFT. And there's like the Glenn Gould School of Music down there, roundabouts the same time and even a similar look. And he was apparently kind of like a little bit of off, off the wall character. So I, that's the only thing I was thinking of. But I was just because as a musician, I was like really into hit, into the performance. I did think it was a bit over the top and clearly he didn't do very well so he hit fucking destroyed and by the way that's a Steinway one of the most expensive pianos you can possibly ever play (laughs) yeah he doesn't destroy it in the performance he does it later but it's it's not his piano obviously it's the school's speaking of Glenn Gould uh, there was a doc on CBC that just aired like two nights ago produced and uh, directed by my friend Mark Laurie who uh, created that back in our uh, days when we did an MFA in documentary media Ryerson he produced nice. that and uh, yeah you're right uh, Glenn Gould one of the things Mark looks at in his film was how he would uh, kind of have different sounds happening at the same time and he would force your ear to choose one or the other at, at mm-hmm. any given point and how sometimes you would kind of flip and you would you would go between one sequence to another. Uh, I don't know the logic of it, but anyway, interesting stuff. I'm not sure if Peter is getting into anything that deep. I don't know if his thesis stands up next to Glenn Gould or John Cage. Uh, moving on, there's the uh, other guy I loved who was never really put in the shaded light of a suspect. He was just another guy who actually has a lot of concern for the first girl who's killed, who we didn't even mention. Um, and he is... The only thing that they do to kind of throw a little shade at him at one point is show that he's a goalie and a, he's a hockey player. <laughs> you can't do this, Jacques. It's never been done before. Mr. Blake. You can't see down with that thing. Mr. Blake. Jacques. What? And, he, and you're like, wait a minute. That guy's the killer, right? And then it turns out he's actually the coolest dude on earth wearing the fucking dopest fur jacket with this huge quaffing hair. Like oh, this yeah, guy. Baby. And the turtleneck. Like this guy's got a look. You know, it's, it's guys like that that are that are elevated like in in new school horror films or like the love interest and like they're in the sex scene you know what I mean and generally get a little bit more burn on camera he's he's that character 
but he's got more, he's got uh, more substance to him, substance to him. Because like you said, he's the one that's really concerned, right? He's like, where's Jess? He's in, he's yelling to the cop, like fucking start to do something, man. Yeah. Let's he's get- the one who's trying to get the investigation rolling. Yeah. Really. And of course they're playing hockey. And that was in varsity, varsity <laughs> arena too, which I used to break into as a kid. I saw cranberries there, Radiohead as a child. Like it was, it was not, maybe not child, but uh, as a teenager. So this whole movie just honestly is littered with, cause I, I'm a UFT alum. So it's littered with like just memories in my past so on that level I was able to connect with it but that guy that guy is um, yeah like his fucking fur jacket is amazing I love it mm-hmm. I'll tell you who also is a plot pusher who is um, who has like the mo- most craftiest way to get their drink around town because apparently like even as the house mother she's she's kind of she's kind of watch where she's drinking is is the woman who's in charge here like this is, Why is she hiding her booze? Is okay. it because she's worried the, the girls will get into her, her booze? This is my this is my take, Rob. This is a comedy movie. Yeah, <laughs> this is a fucking comedy, man. No, it's, it's a, not. They Rob, would have used Andrea Martin a lot better then. No, but I don't even think they knew what they had in Andrea Martin when this movie was made. Mm, possibly, yeah. Okay, this she's fuck. <laughs> she's got like Sherry. Her whole, her whole, look at her whole outfit. Like you said, Benny yeah. Hill skit, right? She looks like she's from a Benny Hill skit. Yeah. Like she's over the top. She's got the makeup going, like just the way she talks, you know, in one minute, like she's very, um, you know, um, welcoming. And in the next minute she's going to, she's going into the toilet and she's got her drink there. She literally carves out like 150 pages in like in in a dictionary and she's got her sherry in there. Hidden on the bookshelf, which is absurd to me. Like the, the, the level of detail she's going in to hide things in the most obscure places. And it's because she wants access to them throughout the house. Like we see at least three hiding places in this house, which means she's too lazy to hide the booze in one location and just go get it. She instead has to hide it throughout the house so that no matter where she is she can go get a drink on exactly but also it's like she would be wanting to set a good example well newsflash everybody's drinking in the house anyways like what are you what are you hiding this from like they probably know that you're drinking anyways her whole character is comedy And also, the way she's killed is very slapstick. Yeah, it is. I didn't find that scary at all. I no, found that actually silly. like a, it's a silly kill. Like she's like, and just when she turns around, and then like the the stage hook, like this, <laughs> like like the Peter Pan stage hook comes yeah. and gets her, and then then pulls her up through the attic. Yeah, that's interesting. Like it's the, Wiley Coyote, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyways, so that's. That's her, where she, you know, um, she, she's just like, that's, I just have to laugh when I think about her, right? Because she, I, I can just, she's like your grandmother, right? You know, or no, not your grandmother. She's like your aunt. Mm-hmm. She's like your aunt that you see at Christmas time and then maybe in summer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? But in Christmas time, she's like in that cheetah jacket. She's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we all had an aunt like that. I had an aunt Shirley like that. Like everybody just has an aunt like that. I had an aunt Shirley too, but she didn't drink at all. No, no, opposite. Mine did. Um, so, and then the other thing is, she's trying to maintain like this level of composure or like this facade that everything's cool because the father of oh the first God. missing girl is there. He first arrives on campus and then he has to find his way to the sorority, which is hilarious that he doesn't know where his daughter lives, by the way. Rob, this guy is going to be, this guy's going to be drafted in one of the top worst fathers of the year, okay? <laughs> so, first off, when he's, first off, he asks some random school bus driver, have you seen my daughter? And he's like, <laughs> like some fucking do off the street. And he gets pelted by a snowball before he has the conversation. So it's completely random. He's out in like around University Hall with the arches there. I know exactly where it is. And he's like, I think, sorry, I think she's in some sorority or something. That's what he says. Yeah. So that eludes me. He doesn't even know what she's doing. Later on at dinner, he says to her, he goes, I didn't send her to sorority to come and get drunk. So like, it, he doesn't even know what's going on. 
He doesn't have any facial expressions. There's no sense of urgency. His daughter's yeah. like he was he was supposed to meet his daughter at one o'clock and then at one thirty, you know what I mean, he's looking for her. But throughout the entire film, like yeah. he doesn't change his facial expressions. He's out in the he's out in the he's out in the in the park for a search party and there's like nothing happening on this guy's face. I, this lends to, the, to your your argument. This is a, supposed to be comedy because what else is this guy supposed to do other than fill it? Like his blank expressions are supposed to be funny, right? And he's like when he when he just stares at Barb after she goes off about like so, what is she talking about? Like she does some like whole spiel about vaginas or something. Yeah, and he just stares oh, at her with yeah, his like, bushy mustache, and he's just like, he just looks like a small dog, and. You're right. He doesn't react. He doesn't do anything. His daughter is fucking missing and shit is starting to happen now. Now we're starting to learn like, wow, someone else is missing. And I know weird people call in. There's been a a kid that's been killed, you know, like. So is this bad acting or is this bad scripting? Like, it's like we said, like, do we think this guy is playing this movie as if he's supposed to be a comedic presence in the film? Or is he like a bad actor because he's not coming to he's not bringing anything else beyond that one note when, uh, as he's learning this new information or is I that think, just, I guess, or is that how he was directed? Like, you know, you know, you're just supposed to be like, I think the character itself is just indicative of what probably is a 50 year old man in 1970s. You know what I mean? A product of the forties and fifties, just, you know, square cut, just like, Businessman, did you get the feeling he's supposed to be a priest of some kind? I, I, no, not a priest, but definitely like like he's like an insurance guy. He's like a, it, it, there's definitely not a lot of like artistic flair in this in this guy's personality. I also think that just for the movie itself, and this is this is where you can poke a few holes in this film. As good and as much of, of a hit was John Saxon, uh, James Edmund was a miss. You know, just like you needed fucking Liam Neeson in there. You needed you needed somebody from, you know, Taken or somebody that was going to bring a sense of urgency, somebody that was going to bring a sense of. <laughs> no, I'm serious. You want the movie to take a very different turn if it's well, uh, Liam okay, Neeson from listen, Taken. I'm being facetious, but what I'm saying is you needed a guy in there. You needed a guy in there that was going to. I actually like shake shake some cages and rattle some cages. You could, it, it's kind of like the hockey player character wasn't really that necessary if the father had just done more. Yeah, like the father needs to be out. Like the father maybe like the next time the phone rings, the father jumps over. What happens if he went over and goes, "You listen to me, you goddamn motherfucker. Where's my <laughs> daughter? I'm coming for you. I'm an explosive expert." You know I mean? <laughs> or he answers the phone. <laughs> I don't know where you've taken her, but I'm going to find you. And I'm, what's the line? What's the Liam no, Neeson line? No, he's always like, um, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I've acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. I'm just saying that you're right. Like, if you somehow were to amalgamate, you know what I mean? You were, you, you were to bring in hockey player dude and dad dude and make them the same guy. And again, jump on the phone call. Like, like run around a little bit you know what I mean mm-hmm. like like throw a lamp like just do yeah. something right that, or even take a guy in the corner or even you know would have been you know what what could have been cool is the dad if the dad had more burn and if the dad had a, had a stronger center lane the dad could have found the attic and then as as he found him and he started to like fucking break down and freak out he was killed yeah it's true it's all the, it's all females right you know what I mean and then mm-hmm. and then the, the killer comes down Jess is on the phone like, like something like that could have made for a much more climactic and and finished ending but anyways the dad James Edmund he just fuck I does he actually say at one point I feel like I should be doing something <laughs> <laughs> it's like what the fuck man yeah you should be doing if something you, if you feel it you should do it <laughs> it's your daughter in fact her killing is pretty rough like you know you it's like 
There's no creepy lighting. I don't think there's much creepy music. And you get the POV from behind, like the plastic, like, you know, like dry cleaner, dry cleaner case shell that mm-hmm. they, they come in the dresses and then you get it in the face and like, oh, that's rough, man. Anyways. Uh, so let's, let's talk about the character we did like. The cop, John Saxon playing Lieutenant Ken Fuller. Ken Fuller. This, this guy's awesome. Like, this is the thing I think this movie does really well is that it makes the, the police or at least this particular cop, is very competent, very logical. He's following the clues. He's, like, doing all the right things. It There is that other cop who's kind of a goofball, but he's not in charge of anything, so it's not like his... his He doesn't really mess up anything, whereas in other horror movies, we're used to seeing the cops being, like, these bumbling fools who just essentially help the bad guy kill more people. But in this film, uh, Lieutenant Fuller is, like, fucking on the case, and... All his decisions make perfect sense to me, and he seems very intelligent and cool as shit. Movie making in the 70s, cop films were huge, right? So they they were able to get that down. And in this film, I love how the pacing of the police work goes. It's very realistic. And as they take it through, like trying to uncover where the phone calls are coming from. Yeah, Nash, what is it? A phone company's on the other line, sir. They say they got a trace on this one. Yeah, let's have it. He says the calls are coming from number six, Belmont Street. For Christ's sakes, Nash, you got it wrong. That's where the calls are going into. That's where they're coming from, too, sir. Trying to tap the phone calls, trying to see it without just like, boop, 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 like GPS technology like they do now with all the satellites and everything. Like, it was actually really cool to see how yeah. they did it because you, that, that's the thing is like, as a viewer, you actually learn something. And I think that's really important as a viewer. You should be wanting to learn something. So you actually saw, yeah. it's not that they just, you saw how it actually yeah, happened. Yeah, you're talking about the specialist cool. who's at the, the telephone yeah. station, whatever. And he's calling back and just like the mount, like you got to keep them on the line and they had to do it a couple of times. So they build tension mm-hmm. that way. I also think they do a really good job. And it was probably one of the first like fusions of like a cop drama and a horror serial killer brought together. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is where you could like and Black Christmas, I think, does that and does it well. I think this is where you could go and maybe elevate some of the Friday the 13th franchises, Halloween franchises. Like we just did a trilogy of how shitty the cops were in these <laughs> in films. The Halloween movies. And, and it just makes them, you know what? And it just makes the films fucking dumb. Mm-hmm. You, all the things that we love about those movies, you, you have to make like 15 of them, right? So the guy, so they can never be caught. They can never be killed. So the police work can never be good. But in this film, there's only one. And you know, there's spoilers in this podcast. We're not going to reveal the ending yet, but solid police work, a serial killer that is, that's like a, the first stalker horror mm. film uh, and how that all came together as like a, as a genre bender. I think that is a very appealing and attractive about this film. Did you want to and see? And he's a big part of it. John Saxon's a big part yeah, of it. Yeah. Did you want to see John Saxon go toe to toe with the killer and just bring out his enter the dragon skills and just <laughs> Kung Fu, like a third genre just comes sick. in out of nowhere at the end of the movie. It's like a Kung Fu fight at the end. Well, he's sick and enter the dragon, right? Like he, like you said, there's a point I won't go beyond. In, in a way, he kind of plays the same guy. He's like the principled, not anti-hero, definitely hero, like good guy, but not afraid to kind of mix it up and go toe-to-toe. Not afraid to go into the hard areas. That's what I say. Not afraid to go into the dirty areas. But no, I didn't want to see him go toe-to-toe, right? Like it's, not a, it, it, it's, it's a different kind of film. It's more nuanced than that. I don't think you need that overt violence, right? You get that at the end, kind of. Um, but... That was the design of the director, never to show, like, if you had a fight, you'd have to show the killer, right? Mm-hmm. Especially with the cop, but that doesn't happen. So I think that's pretty solid. We get through the characters. That's pretty solid sense of what made the movie really work. And I think what, when you look back on this movie, like, it was very inventive and yeah. shocking and scary, especially the idea that the killer turns out to be in the house and yeah. he's calling from inside the house. And that's actually what you're talking about. They build up that tension when they're at the phone station trying to figure out where he's calling from. They finally realize, oh my God, it's coming from inside the house. The cop who's supposed to be outside the house is dead, just sitting in the front seat dead. Nobody's noticed him. And now the cop is, uh, Saxon's got to, you know, book it over there. And they are not there in time. Jess has to have a showdown with the killer. Um, And she's able to 
not necessarily defeat him. It's hard to say what happens here because Peter ends up coming over and trying to break into the house. And the whole movie makes you think, oh shit, it was Peter the whole time. Exactly. But there's some sort of showdown that they do off camera where Peter ends up dead. She's passed out. And it seems as though she survived by killing him. She had to turn on him and do it herself. She ends up in the bed. The cops are all chatting away. Of course, nobody's bothered to check the attic. And (laughs) the other thing is like, okay, one thing that they didn't check the attic, I can sort of let that pass for this scene at the end. The only problem I have with it is that throughout the film, they're getting phone calls from inside the house. And when they pick up the phone, there's some guy on the other end going, he's making all this fucking noise. He's, I think at one point he kills somebody while he's on the line. Oh, he's screaming at, at times. Yeah. And it's like totally like incoherent, rambling nonsense. Uh, and it's really meant to like make you feel like, oh, this guy's not only like scary, but kind of sexually gross. Yeah. And wait, he's just upstairs and we could, nobody's hearing that. And it's not like the party was like a rager where like they had to turn down the, uh, <laughs> like the, uh, the music and like, listen, like it's, it's, I don't know, unless these old houses are super soundproof, it seems a little weird that he's right up there making that noise. Now, if it had been like, you know, the thing is we also know that he's in the house because the very first scene of the movie is him climbing the lattice outside the building. Which is a strong, strong lattice, Sp- Spider Man esque. Guys up and down that lattice all all movie long. And we saw him. And that that lattice held, man. That shit from eighteen sixty or whatever it's year. Like it's thirty from. feet, thirty feet in the air. <laughs> but anyway, like, seriously, a bit strange that they don't catch that sound and like. But you know, we're gonna brush over that because this movie's doing something interesting. The well, other thing I want to mention, Jamie, becoming to the end here when they do get into that basement scene. Did that not feel like the prototype of Silence of the Lambs? The final scene yeah. there. Silence of the Lambs, I feel like, is a movie we need to do because A, I haven't seen it in forever, and B, it's I remember watching it when I it's it just chilled me to the bone. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's some DNA there. It's a cop procedural yeah. too, like a cop uh, film as well. So maybe there is more connections than we thought of. Yeah, but it, but in the in the basement and everything, I, the one thing I like about the basement scenes is that everything just slows down, mm-hmm. and they just you know what I mean, like who's around which corner, where am I trying to find you know. In, in Black Christmas. So yes, it absolutely. Uh, reminded me of the Silence of the Lamb scene. That was a very creepy scene. This was another creepy scene. Well, here they're, they're putting that POV work that they established in the beginning of the movie. They're putting it to absolutely. work real well here in this final scene. Because now, yep. you know, he's you're seeing it from his viewpoint sometimes where he's creeping around in there. She's trying to hide and make sure she's not, you know, being seen. You know what else was a really creepy scene too, which made me think of um, when Peter starts to wipe away the frost from the window Mm -hmm. and you see his eye first and then when she was up and finds Barb dead and then looks through the crack like the crack of the door and just sees an eye I thought that was interesting that they just showed the eye and then through the window they showed the eye to get kind of the viewer to think oh fuck it's the same person yeah there's a symmetry and then then it made me think of um, he looks like the dude from Clockwork Orange Anyways, yeah, the basement scene is great. And that will just take us to the end, Rob. And, you know, I think we had, maybe we had conflicting ideas, but essentially uh, you mentioned that she's sleeping in bed. She's gone through this like herring ordeal. The cops are around her. There's a policeman stationed. You know, there's the cops around her, but then they start to walk away. Mm -hmm. You know, the camera pulls back. It's like the end of the film, right? There's a policeman stationed outside the front door. And but then the camera pans up to like the attic and you hear him. You hear you hear the killer like giggle. He's still in the house Mm -hmm. and he's not been caught. It wasn't him that was killed. And then it implies that uh, Jess is about to get it, too, because she's asleep in the bed. Exactly. Or whatever is going to happen. Like, I guess that exactly. It implies that she's going to get killed. What did you think about that ending? You know, is this is this a piece of clever filmmaking or is this or is this a cop out? You know, it's weird because um, I think one of the reasons people might say it's a cop out is because they're expecting this to turn into uh, a franchise. And I think the horror movie genre, for some reason, has conditioned us to think that like, oh, how do they do a sequel out of this? You know, I don't think they no. were trying to do a sequel. Yep. I don't think they ever had that in their mind for this film. And if you're not going to have a franchise... It's kind of cool that you end with a very open-ended, doubtful ending that kind of 
you know, raises the hair on the back of your neck and makes you think, you know, this, this is not over yet. Although that also kind of makes it feels like it's opening a door to a franchise, but I don't know. I had real problems with it. One way, at one point I was like, what? I don't get to see the guy. And then at the end I was like, maybe it doesn't matter. Cause I don't know if I care about him as a iconic character because we don't get anything more than a little bit of peekaboo with his eye. We don't see him. We just get some sound. And, uh, and that's like not enough to hang a hat on in the sense that like, oh, I got to get more of that guy. I want to see more of him. I think it's better that he's sort of omnipresent and sort of like just a mysterious shrouded figure because that has so much more impact than if you find out, yeah, he really is just a crazy Larry from down the street. I think that you're spot on with one of your points is they weren't trying to make a sequel. And, and I'll tell you why they weren't trying to make a sequel is because they would have, if they wanted a sequel in mind, they would have been trying to, to make a franchisable star. So they are a franchisable character and create a killer, create something that could exist in sequel after sequel after sequel. And the fact that it wasn't made or the fact that you never even saw the killer, you know, we had no idea of what this person would look like. Uh, it just reinforces to me that it was a standalone film. So I never think that they had an idea with, uh, for a sequel. The one thing that, that piqued my curiosity is with the phone calls, the first thing I thought of was, wow, this is really touching on mental health and maybe schizophrenia and um, split personality because of the different voices. And I think sometimes it's even alluded, alluded to in the film where they, where they talk about that, right? Mm-hmm. Is it one voice? Is it two? Like, well, what's happening with this with these phone calls? And I think it would have been interesting to explore and get some answers as to who was on the other end and not to get too fucking comic booky. This is my influence of being around you too much, but to get an origin story because when you don't, when you never, when the killer is never revealed, the motive is never revealed. So there's that piece that remains unanswered and that can, that can be, you can, if you don't care about the film, it doesn't matter but if you do care about the film you are interested in what is the motive what is the thought process behind the killer why did they do these things so mm. for me I like this film and I was disappointed that I didn't receive those answers at the end of the movie yeah I know what you mean I'm just not sure if it matters because like you said it's they're not they're not showing you who it is anyway so what does it matter it's almost more frightening for it to be something you have zero understanding of like the more you know, the the more you don't know the more afraid you are of it like it presents as a not like a paranormal entity you know so i like i i do care about it that's the thing i like i i do want to know it's not like it's something that it's 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 a man or it's a woman you know what i mean and it's but maybe that's it like maybe male violence towards women is actually banal like in like it's harsh to say that but that that sense that like what more are you going to get from this creature this person other than to find out that he's just a misogynist so it's representative of not just a singular but (laughs) Mm -hmm. and a way it becomes like he becomes like the force of misogyny it's an interesting take on it but it's one that I could one that for me makes a lot of sense because I start staring down the different roadways of where the thinking was with why he didn't reveal the killer what was the meaning behind the killer and and they seem to get blocked off and that is one idea that sort of rings true uh and i know that this film was inspired by a serial killer in montreal i'm not sure if it was violent if it was the all female victims but it's something interesting to think about you want to know what else is interesting to think about rob the running scared award i'm gonna make a run for it So, Rob, okay, so I went first last time. Well, first contextualize Running Scared Award. Okay, so the, uh, every time we do a film, every time we review an, a film, I don't even say review a film, every time we do an episode uh, and we look at a movie, we always take a look at which character Rob or I thought, think or thought uh, was getting the most exercise in the movie. So we call this the Running Scared Award. Now, I have mine all lined up. Rob, I'm going to actually throw it to you. Rob, Black Christmas... 
who is getting the running scared award uh, from you for this movie? Well, I think it's got to go to Chris, right? Uh, he's playing goalie. He's got he plays a full sixty minutes. This is the thing about goalie people forget. You know, most hockey players average about fifteen. If you're a good player, twenty minutes a game. But the goalie's on there for a good sixty minutes, man. It goes to overtime. That's sixty-five. So. Uh, I got to say, the guy getting the most exercise, and he's running around town. He's telling yeah. the cops what the fuck is going on. I mean, he's not smashing pianos, but yeah, I bet he could. This guy is huge. He probably killed an animal with his bare hands to get that jacket. I'm giving it to Chris Hayden. Chris, Chris Hayden, you're going to come in with Art Hindle. This guy ended up, um, he was in like, um, what is that, like Malcolm, no, Falcon Ridge. He was, this guy was like, yeah, can, he's a big Canadian actor. Is he Canadian? Can, yeah. can rock. Like this guy's a Canadian dude. Um, he's also in Porky's. Good friends with Blue Rodeo, dude. Uh, yeah, Art Hindle. All right, I like that, Rob. Um, good, but not great. I'm going to come in with. <laughs> don't, don't pick the cop. You picked the cop for the last three movies now. <laughs> no, I'm not coming in with the cop, Rob. I'm going to come in with. Leslie Carlson, the switchboard operator. <laughs> I thought you were going to go to the house mom, but this is good. Let me hear this. All right. Let me tell you something, Rob. There's no less than four calls that they're tapping. This guy's running from the phone to the banks of switchboards in the doldrums in the basement of the police station. He's calling. He's using his fingers. This guy's got both hands working. It's like fucking, it's like the imitation game, 1926. He's, he's working up a sweat. And the reason why I'm giving it to him, because there's no doubt, there's no doubt that, uh, that Chris Haynes is definitely... He's sweating it up. Is uh, is that uh, is that Leslie Carlson is doing it under pressure? And when things are under pressure, you're burning you're burning more calories. And the fact that this guy doesn't put a foot wrong, he's calling everything. He's he's, he's making the switches. The running scared. He's going to Leslie Graham. All right, all right. Well, we do not agree, but uh, <laughs> both good cases. I thought. I mean, <laughs> goalies win games. That's all I'm saying. Goalies, goalies win games. All right, buddy, let's do the review and uh, put a stamp on this episode. Okay, you know what? I'm going to go first. I'm going to offer a concise review of this movie. So, uh, Black Christmas, 1974. Uh, this was a Canadian, really a Canadian independent film, uh, filmed on location in and around University of Toronto, you know, my alma mater. I think this movie is fresh and new, and I think it's a genre starter. Uh, you know, um, Carpenter's come out and said that uh, that he looked at this film for a little bit of inspiration. Seventy four, good police work, uh, a, a, a crazy—I don't want to say crazy, but an ill serial killer uh, that is in the house stalking, uh, you know, a bunch of women in a sorority house. It's really frightening, really scary. Some really good choices for, uh, for cast, especially the cop, the dad, not so much, but some <laughs> of the sorority sisters are really good. And you have like the verbose one, you have the quiet one, you have the, the sensitive one. You've got some, you've got some comedic appeal from the house mother uh, and the two search party dudes that are coming around. But how this works as a film is, you know, there is um, something that happens. You got Lois Lane, man. You got Marco Kidder. Yeah, exactly. Lois Lane. Um, You know, something happens at the beginning and there's a death at the beginning and then they're searching for her and and there's an intensification throughout the whole film. I thought it was a little bit slow at Mm -hmm. times. Uh, I thought the pacing could have, you know, clicked along but I think once you got to about halfway through the film um, the movie has a lot of strengths and I think looking back now at the movie and what it did offering like the phone technology the POV Mm -hmm. being in the attic not revealing the killer Mm -hmm. marrying a, a serial killer horror film to like a police film as a genre bender I just think all these are really 
notable things that were done 50 years ago in a movie, okay? And we can still watch it and it still had some creepy moments. And, you know, 50 years later, uh, forget about a horror film. If you can look back at a film 50 years and you're like, yeah, man, they got that fucking right. Like, that was really good. That made sense. You learned something from this from this movie. I think they did a lot of things right. So, Black Christmas, Rob? Like, I'm going to go... Um, I'm gonna go. Um, I'm gonna go f- four footsteps out of five for this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think I'm right there with you, man. I was gonna go three and a half. Um, I was I was like humming and hawing between yeah. three and a half, or th- you know. I think the the slowness and the there are times it's a bit boring. But the more we talked about it through this pod, the more we started kind of peeling off some of the really innovative things about this film. You just listed them, plus uh, a spunky Canadian low budget film. Like they came up with a lot of creative ways. Yep. To make an interesting film on a low budget, uh, Margot Kidder. Uh, Hindle, uh, Martin, a lot of Canadian actors in this. So I mean, I'm maybe I'm maybe I'm touching this up a little bit to 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 like get the Canadian uh, love into this uh, rating, but I do think there are some things that lasted. I think like you and I have both identified throughout this pod that there are connections and like sort of uh, ways that this film influenced things like Halloween, Silence of the Lambs, a few other films probably along the way. That POV camera being such a unique thing uh, at the time really using the technology available at the time, uh, which I also think is always commendable when you can think of a new way to, to, you know, it's, it's not even an expensive way, but it's just using it in a, you know, finding a way to do something new with what's available to you. And, uh, yeah, pretty creepy film. And I think, you know, ambitious in its attempt to like be extra scary by not revealing the killer, by not letting him get caught, uh, leaving it hanging like that, leaving that unsettling feeling when you leave. Um, if you are to sort of like, draw it up in your mind as this like metaphorical um you know uh metaphor for you know the the omnipotent omnipotent power and, and and aggressive nature and violence of misog- of you know misogynistic you know uh, what's the word i'm looking for here like um sexism towards women like because it's all about women dealing with it like the men are there helping some of them are helping but like it's really about how they have to deal with this because it's all mm. being ha- it's all occurring to them it's happening to them and this guy's just like an embodiment of all that grossness and uh you know he's not caught because this shit is still happening all the time and, and the fact that yeah. we're talking about it uh i don't want to make it sound too old because i think it's 48 years later but uh, <laughs> you're right 50 years later yeah. um this film really is one of those ones that sets forth the emotion that where we're seeing so much feminist critique in horror films uh, because of movies like this. Um, I mean, positive feminist critique, like we're actually like seeing positive characters, women that uh, solve the problem themselves, that, that don't that don't uh, just talk about men and cow to the villain and all that kind of stuff. They actually like solve the problem. So yeah, I'm going to give it a four. It's still a little higher than I thought I was going to go. I was, I was going to come in at three and a half. I'm going to push it up a little more because I think you've made some arguments that really helped me uh, make me feel like this film is uh, is worth considering as a landmark film in the genre of horror. Yeah, I, I, just lastly, it's, I think we've talked ourselves into m- mining the merits of the film, yeah. right? Like when, you know, it's this is not a movie that you just kind of watch face, you know, once through, take it at face value and be like, yeah, that's a, that's that's a great movie. Maybe some people do, but like I got to, I love, and we've said this before in the pods, if I got to think it, mm-hmm. I'm going to like it. You know what I mean? So if it makes me think, and and I actually got to kind of pull pull some layers away, peel them back. Then for me, that's way more of a intellectual journey and challenge and and you know exercise than just yeah. taking everything at face value. So what well, makes you appreciate the making of the film too? You start thinking about what the choices yeah, they made, why they sure. made them, how they did it. So another great film, uh, James. We will be back soon with a uh, exclusive on Patreon. We're doing for Christmas the Ginger Dead Man. Oh, which I'm I can't. not looking forward to, but you have made me, you've dragged me into this one. So if you're, okay. on, if you're one of our Patreon subscribers, uh, we love you and uh, we appreciate your support. There is some ex- exclusive content coming your way very soon. If we don't get to talk to you before Christmas, we hope you all have a great holiday and a happy new year. We uh, hope to be dropping at least one more, but that might be the Patreon one, so I'm not sure. Um, and uh, signing off, James, you want to say anything to the people back home? No, Rob, that was well said. Just uh, uh, happy holidays. Uh, 
uh, stay safe and we'll try to get something out to to on the main feed but um but, but yeah for the patreon listeners ginger <laughs> i can't even <laughs> fucking say it i can't even say what's true gary Busey. i've watched this movie it is like the biggest pile of shit I've ever seen in my whole life, but there's some fucking hilarious points. Like, all I'm gonna, I'm gonna drop this nugget. If you think this dad is bad in this movie, wait till you see some of the fucking antics this guy pulls. He gets himself killed immediately in the movie for making the couple of the dumbest decisions I've ever seen. Anyways, we can review that and we can talk about that film. Um, I would love to get one more out there before the new year probably not before christmas what's a new year's horror film mm. fuck christmas what's a what's a horror film about the new years if you have any ideas send us an email at the running scared podcast at gmail.com i'd love to hear what you uh what you guys have to say anyways that is rob and i or for rob and i uh thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on running scared the Running Scared Podcast is written and produced by Robert Lendrum and Jamie Roberts, with original music by Jamie Roberts. This episode edited by Jamie Roberts. Follow us on social media and tune in for another movie review next time on Running Scared.